You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Anybody a little sunburned from yesterday? Yeah, it's, it's, it was confusing. I was at my kid's soccer game, and I'm like, why am I hot? I haven't been hot in years. And here we are. Sorry, sorry, yeah. <laughs> good call. Um, that's funny. Uh, guys, good to see you. So like we say with any series, I would say almost more so of this one. I don't know if you can say a section of Scripture is more important, <laughs> so we can edit that out. But I think the Sermon on the Mount is just a portion of Scripture that is just undeniably important. It is so crucial. This is Jesus' compilation of Jesus' most just like rich teachings of his heart, of God's heart, of what the kingdom of heaven is like, who inherits it, uh, what the people that populate this kingdom are like, um, and it's huge. And if you missed last week, uh, we actually started the series at the end, um, and thanks to Steve who kind of brought that and uh, just did a brilliant job walking us through some of the background that sets up uh, the setting for this Sermon on the Mount. The cool correlations uh, from uh, Exodus, uh, the, the gospel writer of Matthew, um, he has a lot of um, uh, ways that he wants to show that Jesus is kind of the new Moses, the new and better Moses in this way. And so Matthew, in a lot of ways, is formulated to the Exodus narrative and how the Sermon on the Mount is kind of akin to this new giving of the commandments like Moses had, um, and in such a beautiful way. Um, but ultimately, as we'll look at uh, really specifically next week, um, but we talked last week that Jesus came to fulfill God's plan for his people, to fulfill the coming and establishment of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, heaven to earth as its king. And we defined fulfill last time as to interpret God's law correctly and walk out that interpretation with your life. So it's less of an accomplishment, less of a checklist, and more of actually fulfilling what it was supposed to do. So the important thing is Jesus is not giving a new law or going against what God has commanded his people, but he's actually interpreting it correctly, living it out in his person correctly, and then teaching his followers uh, the way to then live it out themselves. And he's doing this with full authority placed upon him by God the Father in his baptism that we looked at last week. So if you missed it, go listen to that. Steve did a wonderful job. And in fact, Jesus concludes at the end of this sermon, at the end of what we're going to spend the next few weeks diving into, he concludes and says in, in Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words, these words we're about to go through, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's, that's the challenge, right? Everyone who hears these words and does them. That's for us this morning. We're about to hear these words. There's going to be a challenge, right? All other teachers that would teach in this era would say, hear the word of the Lord or hear the scriptures. But Jesus says, hear the words of mine, right? Jesus right now is putting a stamp on like, he is Lord. 
He's about to teach his followers what the correct interpretation of the law, the correct kingdom to focus on, and the correct character his followers were to have. And if they listen and put them into practice, they will have an unshakable foundation. So before we start, the question is, church, do we want that? Do we desire an unshakable foundation to our faith? In a culture of disordered ideologies, unhelpful deconstruction, or just walking away from faith entirely, what would it look like for a people to not be shaken? What would it look like to not be constantly wondering what this Christ-following thing should look like, but actually live it actively and joyfully for the glory of God? And if this is what you want, I know I so desperately am a failure at this, but want that so desperately. We need to allow the next few weeks to just wash over us as the words of life. Jesus is going to reveal to us, as he revealed to his disciples on this mountainside, what the kingdom of heaven is like, and specifically the kind of people that populate and embody the values of this kingdom. Today, we get to begin the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to apologize that we are going to dive into a bunch of scripture, but I'm going to warn you, we're going to dive into a bunch of scripture today. It's important to remember the context, right, that Jesus is speaking to first century Jewish apprentices to him. There was much in their culture they already knew that we don't necessarily know. We know that these particular disciples Jesus called to follow him did not go all the way through their schooling um, since they were in the workforce. So though they are not the most scholarly men, there would have been much that they would have known, at least known the Torah, the law the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. Who knows the first five books of our Bible? By heart. Anyone? Okay. Well, we're already behind. <laughs> and much of, our, uh, much of the Psalms, much of our Old, scripture that, uh, Old Testament scripture that we have in Jewish tradition and practice, they would know. So today, much of Jesus' teachings have connections and rich history behind his words. But the most important thing is not knowledge. I know we love to prize knowledge and what we know, but the most important thing is to have a posture of listening ears and open hearts for God to speak through his word directly to us this morning. This sermon of Jesus is beautiful, and you will see it is challenging. And I want to pray for us real quick that we don't hear anything remotely like, do these things better, or here's a checklist to a better life. We're going to allow Jesus to teach us the posture of the heart God is looking for in his people. And with this posture comes a great responsibility. So let me pray and let's get into it, okay? Father, we ask that, um, Lord, as we prepare our hearts, we don't even know fully how to open our ears and open our hearts to you, but would you guide us in your spirit? Would you allow us to be shaped and formed by the people you want us to be and hear these words afresh? Many of us know these words well, but to just have anything that unlocks a new thought uh, or a new way that can help us be just more like your son today. Um, God, we're here. We give you the glory and we surrender to you. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, let's get into it. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds... He, being Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. Many of you have heard this as like the Beatitudes, right? This is, these are the blesseds or the blessings that are about to happen. So two words we need to make sure we're seeing right here on the get-go. So the first one is blessed. Blessed, blessed, however you want to say it. It's not necessarily happy. One Bible translator says lucky. Lucky are the poor in spirit. Um, happiness kind of comes with feelings and circumstance, and we know biblically you can have joy without necessarily having happiness, right? So one, I was trying to think, like, what, and there's lots of commentators to talk about what does blessed mean, all this kind of thing. But there's one principle that I think is really key, and we can kind of learn from this. It doesn't work for every word. This word, I think, is very helpful. But there's a, in the Bible world, there's a principle called the principle of first mention. Has anyone heard of that before? Okay, good. You should teach it then. Um, no, it's good. This is where a Bible word is defined by the first time that word is used in Scripture. And then it kind of means that definition throughout all scriptures. You can see why it doesn't work for every word, because words happen in different circumstances. But it's a very helpful principle here with blessed. So the very first time that blessed or blessed is used is in the creation story. Okay? God creates light, land, vegetation, sun, moon, and the planets. And he says they're all good. But then he creates all the creatures on earth in the sky and in the water... And this in Genesis 1.22 is where he says the very, for the very first time in creation, Genesis 1.22, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because this is the same blessing God gives mankind, except mankind is to fill all the earth and have dominion over all creation. So it's like that next step. But this is the first time blessed is used. And blessed, as you just saw, is always linked now to living a life-giving life. A life that is fruitful and reproducing, not just in a sexual manner, but in a receive life, give life kind of way. As God says it later to Abraham, he says, you will be blessed to be a blessing. Right? So as God has given life, go and do likewise in his image. So all day today, as that principle kind of gets put on this, when you hear blessed, think this is what a life-giving life looks like. God is breathing life into the kinds of characters Jesus is describing here to then be that breath of life to their areas of influence. And the first one God's breathing life into is those with the posture of poor in spirit. So historically, some have debated on this, if this is truly like poor people, like if this is just that, that very true sense of the word, or some have argued poor of mental fortitude, spirit was more of mind than body. Matthew adds the spiritual emphasis there, poor in spirit, so it's kind of hard to know. But there's two passages that can help us get close to the meaning this morning. Isaiah 57, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Contrite is like a penitent heart. Someone who kind of feels the way and is ready for change, right? Isaiah 66, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So one thing that could be helpful, I think we're getting there, of kind of what that poor in spirit could be, but one thing that could be helpful is who is this not? Right? This is not a haughty, prideful person. This is not someone who has everything and sees no need for salvation. This is not a narcissistic or self-important person. Think of kind of the Pharisees and Sadducees who kind of jumped off the ship and stopped seeing the law as humbling and pointing towards God, and they sought more of a challenging checklist for self-righteousness. Jesus is not talking about these people. This is most likely someone who is brought to their knees in humility and surrender to the end of themselves. This is someone who is at the end of themselves and desires repentance and salvation. This is for those who bow their head and bend their knee to Jesus Christ. But remember, these are also these are biblical times that we're reading in, not just for Americans in our context. The Israelite people have a rich history of losing everything. Right, So many Old Testament battles and wars, slavery in Egypt, exiled to Babylon, conquered by Rome. The Israelites have often been labeled a poor remnant. Everything they have is because of God's blessing to restore, not out of their own greatness unlike the other great nations that conquered them. Like Egypt and Babylon and Media Persia, all these kingdoms who dominated Israel at times all relied on their wealth and their power. But the God of Israel always proved himself to be greater and mightier than any earthly nation. Even the disciples of Jesus were considered culturally poor. I'm going to read real briefly their call to follow this rabbi, Matthew 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What did they do? Immediately... They left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So even these disciples, they had nothing, nothing but Jesus This is the core of what it meant to be poor in spirit, not just nothing in materials, but no kind of worth to their name that would make them something outside of God. It's in their nothingness that they find everything in Jesus. So for all who would humble themselves and for those who were actually poor, actually crippled, actually downcast and lost, if they don't put their faith in better circumstances, in money, in power or fame to save them, but they put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, These are the types of people welcome with open arms into the kingdom of heaven. People who fear God, tremble at his word, remember it was that phrase, and want to follow him must come to the end of themselves, acknowledging their spiritual bankruptcy, emptying themselves of any self-righteousness. These are the types of people who belong in the kingdom of heaven. And after every blessed, what I'd like to do is just for us now to hear that phrase again. So let us hear Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning, uh, interestingly, is an emotional counterpart to those poor in spirit. Typically, when someone hits rock bottom or recognizes their utter depravity or depravity on mankind as a whole, it doesn't feel great. 
It's the kind of worship that happens through mourning that God's world and God's creation is not all right. Something desperately needs to happen, and that starts with God's people. This is a communal grief and a mourning on a large scale that is too big for one person or community to solve. And we get together and we pray and we seek for that, but it's heavy, it's weighty. There's also a personal level to this as well, personal grief over personal sin. Going back to the prophet Isaiah, I told you I wasn't going to apologize about Scripture because it's just so good. Whom Jesus alludes to Isaiah all the time. Isaiah and Ezekiel, he just quotes back, left and right. And I'm struck <clears throat> over and over again at the short story of this vision that Isaiah has recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. And in the vision, he has, he has not, been, <clears throat> excuse me, not been ceremoniously cleaned. He has not prepared himself. He is not ready to be in God's presence. And yet in this vision, he is transported directly into the holy of holies, like the most sacred space, the closest thing to on earth as it is in heaven. This is Isaiah chapter 6. And when he's there, he opens his eyes, and there's these winged creatures called seraphim who are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And not only seeing the scene, but verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is a terrifying scene. And I, and I said, Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. See that personal and communal grief there. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like this moment of intense recognition for Isaiah of his uncleanliness, his, his uh, lostness in this place. Woe is me. This is like the ultimate mourning because he knows that there, this cannot continue. Like he will be utterly destroyed. But what happens? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Like goosebumps, right? The uncleanliness of Isaiah did not taint God's holiness for a second. In fact, God's holiness cleansed Isaiah without him doing anything but coming to the end of himself and mourning his own wretchedness. And this is why Jesus says, blessed are those who seize the troubles of this world and mourn, because instead of despair, they will be comforted that the darkness cannot consume God's holiness. Rather, God's holiness will overcome that. So let us hear, church, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, meek uh, is kind of an awkward word. I don't know if you use that word regularly, um, but I, I prefer gentle, which is just another translation of it. Um, Jesus himself called himself this. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus in Matthew 11 he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
So this is encouraging. It was very, very astute to, for disciples to say, live as your rabbi lives. For Jesus to say, I am gentle, I am meek. And for him to say, you blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek. But going back in a verse, this is, and this will unlock it a little bit, going back one verse in that Matthew 11, there's the classic passage that we, most of us know. Come to me, all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, this is what Jesus sets up to say, for I am gentle and lowly. Here's what often happens. This passage is used as a sort of litmus test to see where we're at. You ask the question, hmm, am I weary and heavy laden? Yes? Okay, I'll go to Christ and I'll get rest. And then you ask the question, hmm, today, am I weary and heavy laden? Not really. I feel pretty good. I, I, I'm feeling, you know, praise the Lord, but I don't have to desperately now go to Christ and get rest from our own delusion that everything is fine. Everything is not fine. We just aren't wrecked by it all at this very moment. So don't get me wrong. Praise God that we get moments of rest from the burdens of the whole world because no one can carry that. None of us can, right? But the point of this passage is not to come to God only when you have labor and feel heavy burdens. This produces a meekness, a gentleness to life when you recognize we are a people of labor and heavy burdens. That's human, right? This produces that gentleness to just know this, it's hard. Things are tough. This characteristic doesn't just try to muscle through life on its own self-righteousness. Instead, it comes and finds rest in the righteous King Jesus, the people of gentleness, as Jesus would define it, are those who understand their own weight so they can have empathy and grace for others carrying what they are carrying. And the confidence that Jesus has already borne the weight and not counted it against those who love him. That's why we have the beautiful passage and we know and we can read in Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, the high priest to end all high priests, understood our burden and felt it himself, but without sin. That's why he gets the glory. He doesn't look at his people and say, why are you struggling? Get yourself together, Matt. Stop being such a baby, you know. My inner critic says that, but not Jesus. And he embraces me. He says, son, I get it. It breaks my heart too, but I am with you always. Another thing that's interesting to point out that this is actually a pretty shocking statement. I'll go back and say it. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This whole section is talking about, in the Sermon on the Mount, about the values of what God approves in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But here Jesus says the meek, the gentle, will inherit the earth. Is that interesting? Earth here is also the same word as land. Deep in the theology of the Messianic kingdom is language hearkening back to God's promise to Abraham that he would make a nation with his genealogy and he would give them a home, a land, the promised land. And God did what he said he'd do, and we can read about that in the Old Testament. But in our context, there was another looking towards the coming of God's kingdom once again, but not a you go someplace when you die kind of place, but rather a kingdom of heaven on earth established in peace, ruled by the meek and humble under the fully established reign of Jesus Christ as Lord. 
No more tears. No more death. This is in Revelation. No more sadness. As one of my favorite kids' Bibles puts it, making everything sad come untrue. So for first century Jewish disciples to hear that the land, the land they are to inherit, would be made up of the meek, not the wealthy, not the mighty, this would have been an encouragement. Remember where they're currently residing, under, in a land governed by Rome, who's just, who is absolutely all about power. Plus, being painfully aware of the long, rather shameful history of their ancestors of Israel living in the promised land, trying to rule and consistently turning their hearts from God. But this new kingdom land was to be their land if they adopt the values of the kingdom and follow the teachings of its king. So let's hear, blessed are the gentle and the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus goes on. You guys still with me? Excellent. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Man, what a line. Proverbs 2, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it for, as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. Righteousness from God is what we should search for like treasure, but not for riches, but more like hunger and thirst. These are survival words. This isn't something to gain. This is something to live, right? Righteousness is the only thing worth living for, but it's not self-righteousness, and this is where the perversion, we're so good at twisting that. We're so good, right? That's just, that's the human. That's the bent, the sin bent that we have. That's the perversion of what Jesus is saying. This is a deception of sin. For those who are seeking righteousness of God, but in turn twist it to be because of their own greatness and what they can provide to God. And we see this played out in all of human history. There's a constant need to repent and go back and realize our spiritual starvation and dehydration and go back to the source of life. And to realize this isn't just a personal thing. Seeking righteousness is saying a people of virtue, of moral good character, of uprightness and goodness to the standard, standard of God. These are also community words. These are community words. Making up this kingdom of heaven, uh, uh, they, this affects all areas of influence as a community. And to echo the question of what must we do then, it was asked of the Lord, recorded in Micah 6, Everyone's favorite passage, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is seeking righteousness as a community, not just an individual. So let us hear. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus continues with the posture of those who desire this kind of righteousness. I'm going to read three in a row, seven, eight, and nine. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's work this a little bit. Merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. 
Like, like this, you could just read that and be like, man, this is just like idealistic utopia talk, Jesus. Like, Jesus, it feels like he's sitting with his chin in his hands, sighing, looking off in the clouds, just kind of passive-aggressively being like, wouldn't it be nice if people were full of mercy and pure intentions and there was just peace everywhere? Like, yes, that would be very nice. But listen, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Like, mercy begets mercy. It might seem simple, but often it becomes, Lord, show me mercy as I show judgment on those who are lost or those who are wrong in my family, who are arguing against me, but Lord, I'm doing the right thing. Show me mercy. Mercy is someone not getting what they deserve. So instead of judgment, there's a realization that I too am a sinner in need of grace. I too have been guilty of turning from God. I too am capable of destruction and death. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, as Paul writes merciful is the posture followers of Jesus have received to then turn around and to show to others mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart can be kind of tricky to translate completely, but what could help is to look at its opposite, and that's hypocrisy. Having impure or dark desires or intentions that don't match, that the inside doesn't match the outside. This is what makes God God. He knows the heart of man. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees the heart. So for those who are pure, God sees favorably upon them, which is an incredible blessing. Unlike Adam and Eve, the fruit cannot tempt and God cannot be deceived for he knows the truth. He knows the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Like notice this is not just throwing deuces up and being blissfully at peace. This is a particular peace, peace making. Jesus wasn't just a peaceful person. He brought peace, particularly between God and his people. In the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is teaching on, there is peace with God and his people. This peace can only be because the people were reconciled to God. And that reconciliation is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. So the people within it are to be all about that as well. Israel as a nation was labeled as God's sons. So to be a nation once again in the kingdom of heaven that is all about being reconciled to then have the ministry of reconciliation, not just showing peace on earth, but showing the peace available through the grace of Jesus Christ. So church, let's hear this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now we move into a different section. Jesus actually moves to kind of the negative side effects of following him. Because honestly, so far, it's like, all right, I, I'll, that's good. Those are not too hard. I will try to do that. We will allow Jesus to form us into those types of people. But now, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I can imagine for the disciples, they're hearing all this, and then all of a sudden saying, wait, what? <laughs> what? Why, you know? 
Blessed are those are, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The key here isn't about persecution. It's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Pursuing righteousness is an emptying of the self. It's a crucifixion of the flesh and what belongs to the earth for something greater and higher. That is the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly here, the same reward for those persecuted is the same as our first blessing, poor in spirit. Right? Yours will be the kingdom of heaven. No wonder when you're being persecuted, you also are at the end of your rope, end of your personal will and energy, with still that glimmer, small glimmer of hope in God. Why do you think so many of David's psalms, when he's being persecuted by Saul or his son or his enemies, he says things like this. I want to read two to you. Psalm 3. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. These are powerful psalms, Right? So many times there's a crying out to God, but there's not that glimmer of hope yet, but you are good, but yet you are holy. Pursuing righteousness, but persecuted, and at the end of himself, this is when David finds the shield of God. This is when David finds the holiness of God, the deliverance of God remembered and trusted, and this is the kingdom of heaven. This is the rejoicing that can happen because persecution cannot overcome the comfort that is Emmanuel, God with his people. That is what the prophets of old knew, why their ministry was so impactful and to make up much of our scriptures. So let us hear verse 10 again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness', for righteousness sake. So the blessings, the Beatitudes come to a conclusion. And I imagine the disciples and some of us are overwhelmed with how upside down and radical this kingdom of heaven is. These are characteristics of those who make up the population of this kingdom of heaven led by Jesus himself. But as we said earlier, Jesus also gives a great responsibility that comes with these characteristics. This is not a checklist. This is not just look like this and you will do great this is what God wants to produce in his new creation people, but for a purpose. So stay with me. I think this is, this is the part where it all comes together. So now Jesus gives a challenging teaching. The challenge that goes against any thought 
that this whole thing could be something that individuals could just believe in the words of Jesus, change their life a little bit, accept this in their heart, and live a quiet, isolated Christian life waiting for the end to come where they can have a blissful eternity. Jesus capitalizes what he just taught and who he just taught were blessed in the kingdom of heaven without this great responsibility they have using two examples of salt and light. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Real quick, there were obviously no deep freezers or fridges or ways to keep things preserved in this area, so salt was the ancient preservative. Of course, salt can help with flavor, of course, but Jesus addressing his disciples specifically is calling them the salt of the earth. How is this related to the Beatitudes? Just like salt rubbed into a meat will slow its decay, Disciples of Jesus are spread out into the earth, preserving and slowing the sin decay of God's beautiful creation. Where the world has started to decay is where these followers of God are meant to go. What good is it if salt just piles itself up in corners and is never used? Salt is for what is decaying. What the disciples just heard, what we just read in verses 3 through 12, now Jesus is saying, if you model your life and you live as gentle or meek, sin mourners, hungry for righteousness, merciful peacemakers with pure intentions, this is as if God's spreading salt all over his creation that is dying. So there's a commissioning here from Jesus of his disciples, being who they were remade to be, to be like salt, to be like salt was made to be, to be extenders of God's saving grace. But he addresses the salt itself. Now, uh, nerd alert, sodium chloride is a, is a stable, the science name for salt. It's a stable compound, so it, it cannot lose its saltiness, okay? I'll push my glasses up, right? <laughs> Jesus is the smartest man alive, and he would know this, so he's addressing less of that and more of salt's effectiveness. If you can't taste salt anymore, it's no longer salt, right? If salt becomes so unrecognizable, corrupted with other things, sand, dirt, whatever the case can be, corrupted to the point of looking just like the decay it was there to preserve, then it's useless, Being salt means an active resistance to becoming the decay itself. As this thought is being digested by the disciples, Jesus compounds the conclusion by giving another example of light. You can't talk about decay and putrid smells and death without thinking of darkness. So Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Not only will you be salt, but you will be seen. I'm not going to commission you to go live a quiet life on a beach somewhere. I'm going to send you into the decay and the darkness, but remade as salt and light. In fact, and here's where I want to land today, Jesus continues, verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the same way as a lamp is put on a stand, God will not let you hide away. This is not a path. This sermon is not a path to a better you. This Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus as our life coach moment for you to just do you. He is saying, adopt these characteristics and you'll live the most blessed life, life-giving life now, but followers of Jesus have to use his definition of blessed. Blessed to many of us means it feels good, we'll want to do it, and we'll be happy about it. That's never the case. Blessed, according to Jesus, means a people surrendered to God, being made into the salt he wants to use to preserve and bring life to the dead parts of life and the world. And blessed means made into light that is sent to reveal the darkness in life and the world and shine as a beacon for others to see God and give him glory. This is Jesus' manifesto. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. So the same question before these disciples is before us this morning as we move to respond. Are we in for that? Do we want to follow this Jesus? Are we willing to be a part of God's mission to show the kingdom of heaven now in our lives, in our church, in Albany? It's a hard challenge, right? It's tough to want to be used in that way. But it's the most beautiful challenge that Jesus could ever give us. And it's not ultimately up to us. It's up to our surrender of Christ in us. That is the hope of glory. And that's why we need to take the time now to respond. Before we move further, there's so much in this sermon. I'm so excited for the next few weeks, but we gotta take time to just respond to that and really check our hearts. God, are we in for that? Are we into being remade as salt and light to then be actually used in the world and to be placed in positions of things that we might not want to do or would choose for ourselves? But like we always say, like God has to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. Like this is a surrendering moment. So we're going to respond and we do that. So you guys know we sing. We sing praises. That is surrender. We pray. We have this incredible communion with our God. God, and it's less about talking and more about listening. God, where am I trying to be this on my own? Where am I trying to shy away from you using me? Where am I scared? Where is that fear coming from? And those are all fine questions. Give, like this is a huge thing, guys. It's a huge thing for treasures. Money and treasures is a big thing for us, right? But to actually think about giving it to the community that we can look at blessing the community. What would that look like? It's big, right? And ultimately giving as a cheerful giver to God. And then ultimately receiving. We, we, Sheena prepared communion for us, which is so incredible. And that bread and that blood, like here Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the flesh, but it is for us too. Like, it is, like the scriptures is always for us. And his body and his blood that was broken and spilled for us. And we can sit in that and say, Christ, it is you. It is you in me. Is no longer me, and this is what we desire, this is what we want. So let me pray and let's respond to our good king today.